Okay. All right, here we go, Greg. First episode. Very exciting. Yes, it is. Show notes are at the ready. So uh, where do we want to start on this? Actually, we should probably do a wrap-up of our weeks. Like, how was Prime Day's? Okay, yeah, let's start there. Did you get anything? I did get I did get a few things. Not all from Amazon, though. What I got from Amazon was I bought a new pair of shoes. So really exciting stuff. And yes. uh, <laughs> I grabbed... I also grabbed a kitchen organizer, which holds pots and pans and different things together. Our kitchen layout is just atrocious. We have barely any cabinet space. So I'm really hopeful that this will just revolutionize my kitchen and make it a lot more pleasant place to be because right now it's awful. But (laughs) (laughs) it really is. I just just do not like being in my kitchen or trying to cook. Um, I feel like a kitchen organizer is unlikely to solve that problem. But who knows? Yeah. No, you're, that's totally fair. But I thought it was worth the tr- worth the risk. Wire Cutter recommended this as like their top kitchen organizer. Uh, yes. So I mean, if Wire Cutter says so, then I'm gonna I'm gonna have to just believe it and try it. I, you know, I totally agree. It really is. Oh man, it, as as things like Prime Day and just general internet sales have gotten more and more confusing, there's just such a quantity of information that you cannot go through it all yourself. Those aggregator sites like the wire cutter, especially the ones you can really trust, are so valuable. No, I completely agree. And I actually took your advice on this when Prime Day was starting that you you had said that you basically rely on wire cutter to, to filter out the noise for you. And I took a similar approach and I looked almost exclusively at wire cutter's website and their Twitter feed to see what was going on. And it, and it made it a lot easier to just follow the deals I would actually be interested in because... Watching Amazon's website, it's just somewhat ridiculous how much information there is on the screen. And what was really funny yeah. to me, and I mentioned it to you, was that they now have like a home shopping network-like TV show running. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know about this. It was beautiful just to watch it for a couple of minutes. They were doing they were doing uh, pressure washing. They were trying to they were selling a, a pressure washer. So they had these I don't know dirty pieces of concrete in their studio, and they were pressure washing them off and demonstrating how great they were. So that was actually fun to watch, only because I, I was just somewhat hilarious that That's Amazon has totally morphed into this, I don't even know, conglomerate of different shopping uh, experiences into one. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, like, you know, it's to, to Amazon's benefit and to all online retailers' benefit to overwhelm you with these options and to make it feel like it's moving too fast for you to think about. Yeah, so you know, they want you, you to make impulse it. buys. Yeah, and you know, yeah, because you're going through 20 pages, and you're like, if I spend more than a minute on this page, maybe another product will go on sale that I'll never get a chance to buy, so I have to just decide on this immediately. Yeah, that's true. You're right. And also, some of the deals, it they will mark them, what I found this past year, and that leads to my last purchase on Prime Day. I bought an Apple Watch, though I didn't buy it from Amazon. Um, Amazon, on their first day, they did a, they had a, an all-day deal, or so they could, they, so they said it was an all-day deal of an Apple Watch and a few other Apple products like iPads and such. And I and I was really tempted to buy it and I but I, I put it in my cart and I was waiting because it didn't have the band that I really wanted. They only had Oh um, yeah. Yeah, they only had an inferior option, but I, I was still on the fence. I thought, you know, I can just pick up a different band later. But while uh, it was sitting in my car throughout the day, I went back and checked and the deal was over, even though it said it was an all day deal. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah they were they were operating on china time (laughs) 
Yeah, so that was really disappointing. But thankfully, Best Buy came along the next day, and they just about matched the deal that Amazon was doing, but with more band options. So I just went ahead and picked it up from Best Buy and was able to get the band that I wanted. So I'm, I'm really pleased. Yeah. What did you get? Yeah, did you pick that, up anything during Prime Day? Uh, yeah, I got a couple things. I got um, a stand for my microphone, which I'm using right now, which has definitely improved the way I do recording, I think. I mean, this is my first chance using it, I guess, but it seems better. Um, what else did I get? Uh, well, I got, <laughs> I received the day after Prime Day a Raspberry Pi 4, which I actually ordered almost a month ago and have been just waiting on with bated breath every day. And it showed up with the other things I got from Prime Day, so I'm considering it a Prime Day purchase. And that's my favorite Prime Day purchase, despite being purchased on, like, June 28th. <laughs> um, and what else? Oh, there was, there was a coffee maker that I had really wanted for quite some time. It's a particular type of drip coffee maker uh, that has a bunch of, not so much bells and whistles, because that implies features you won't use, but just, it's very nice. It's the sort of product that I really like. It doesn't have unnecessary features so much as everything it does have is just high quality um and i got that and drank all nine cups of coffee it made yesterday morning throughout wow. the night and was wow. uh, was very hype working from home it was a it was a hype work from home day <laughs> well i imagine with all that yeah. caffeine, you couldn't sit still yeah it was, you know, was just <laughs> flying through my work so productive <laughs> i don't know if we will discuss the effects of caffeine on this podcast but it was uh you know i feel like it, it's the it's a little bit like the balmer peak if anybody's familiar with the Balmer Peak listening, I think caffeine has a much more gradual Balmer Peak effect, whereas you get over-caffeinated, there is a point that you are no longer sitting still enough to even produce anything. No, you. yeah, I agree. And also, what I find along, down this tangent of caffeine is if you take too much caffeine too quickly, it actually has the opposite effect of, of what you desired. It'll make you drowsy, which I find to be one oh. of the most ironic things. I was unaware of that. I also like that the verbiage you use to describe ingesting caffeine reflects the way that you do it. Taking <laughs> caffeine? I don't think many people would say take caffeine. I guess we're going to head down Maybe. this path pretty early. <laughs> yeah, I think we are. Listen, we're going we're gonna to be, we're wasting the golden topics, Ethan, on the very first episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think we walked right into this one. We have to do it. Okay, well, uh, so what is your primary way of ingesting caffeine? Well, so I am... Uh, perhaps a rare breed in that I really am not there for the caffeine. I honestly, given a choice, would prefer to be able to drink good coffee without caffeine. But I really like coffee. And in particular, as I as I consume more coffee, as I get older and older, I get more and more particular about the coffee I drink. And so now I really like a particular kind of coffee and decaf does not even come close to cutting it. I've never found decaf that is even close to the quality of of what I want to drink. Wow. So basically, caffeine is an unnecessary, not unnecessary, maybe unnecessary. It is it is a uh, side effect of me consuming a food that I enjoy, a beverage. Wow, that's really interesting. But so you're a co- you're a coffee hipster. Is that fair to say? I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think you're It's one uh, I don't think you uh, enjoy that label, but from my perspective, you're a Well, coffee hipster. I had this conversation with some college friends. Yeah. Well, I saw some college friends last weekend and I was talking to them about this and I was like, unfortunately, many of my interests 
or maybe not even interests, the things that I enjoy in life often lead me to keep company with hipsters. But unfortunately, I don't actually have anything in common with the hipsters because the hipsters like art and dressing weirdly. And I find that I, I don't have many things to discuss with them. <laughs> I just end up in the same places as them. The coffee shops of the world? Basically, yeah. Basically the bespoke <laughs> coffee shops. So, anyway, you know, anyway, what, your I wanted to back up one moment. So, I didn't know this. So, you can oh, yeah? clarify for me. There is a distinction or difference in the taste between caffeinated coffee beans and non-caffeinated coffee beans. Is this this is correct? Yeah, I think this is like really broadly accepted. Unless it's not, in which case I'll look like a fool. But I, I'm fairly certain that everybody agrees who is into coffee. Because the chemical process that is used to remove the caffeine, not that I know anything about it, but it has some lasting effect on the beans. You know, the beans are not the same coming in as they are going out. Hmm. I, always I think just for that assume, reason. I always assumed that there was just coffee beans that were naturally lacking in caffeine, but that's not the case. They somehow remove it. No, I don't think so. I, I believe caffeine is actually an insect poison, uh, which is pretty wild. <laughs> it keeps insects from eating the coffee plant. Wow. Yeah. So I I think there's no there's no naturally uh, decaffeinated coffee. I see. So and what I was gonna say is people usually wouldn't use good beans to make decaf coffee anyway because it's it's considered like ruining the quality of the beans. Mm. Okay. So you won't even find good coffee that's been decaffeinated usually. I found a couple that are like tolerable, but I still most of the time now will just go without coffee, which is sad. Mm. Interesting. I didn't know any of this. I'm learning a lot already. Yeah. So. I can share now how I consume caffeine. Yeah, which of course I'm un- I'm curious to see if our listeners will will res- provide feedback about how they consume caffeine. I, I wonder if I'm in the a small minority, but I I don't drink coffee. I use <laughs> <laughs> I simply take. You think you might be in the majority <laughs> on this? We'll see. Yeah. So I uh, I used to drink coffee, and I actually enjoy coffee not to your not to the extent that that you do, Ethan. Uh, but I do enjoy the taste. I think it's nice. I do like to lighten it up a little bit with a little cream or sugar, which I know to your hipster ears may sound like uh, like a heretic. But uh, I just take caffeine pills now. It's so much easier, so much more efficient. If I want 100 milligrams, I just break the tablet in half and I'm ready to go. <laughs> <So precise. laughs> That's true. I do. I do really admire that. In general, I strive for efficiency in my life. Uh, I feel that way about food. I would much rather take like a small pill that conveys all the nutritional benefits of the food than have to waste all the time preparing and eating it. That's interesting because I would be but. the exact opposite on that. Whereas like I'm willing to sacrifice any enjoyment I did get out of coffee to just make it easier on myself. But when it comes to food, I do enjoy the taste of food and think it's a little bit worth the effort on some for some dishes. I would say on most days, like it's not it's not worth the extra effort and I would take a pill. But from time to time, I really would like to... Sit down, have a nice meal. Yeah, I can see that from time to time. But I think the only time that I really enjoy food is food that is quite bad for me. And so there's just, you know, there's just no winning Mm, here. It would be better if I could take a pill and gradually wean myself off food entirely. No, that's fair. I'm in the same boat, right? Like, there's no such thing as good, healthy food. It's always, it's just healthy and (laughs) it's just food. (laughs) Still looking. Yeah. Uh, I have noticed, I mean, this is, we're totally down a rabbit hole, but what is this podcast if not a bunch of rabbit holes? Um, (laughs) I have totally noticed that as I've improved my diet in recent weeks, I have sort of a, maybe we'll get to this at some point, but I have sort of a a mental system for forcing myself to eat better. And when I am 
adhering to that, I find that I do have less cravings for the junk food. And some of the good for me food does actually taste better, which is, you know, a, a positive development. The thing is, I give myself breaks from this and maybe I should stop doing that. And during the breaks, I reacquire my habits for eating terrible food. And then I go back to the salads and I'm just like, this is garbage. No, I totally agree with you. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about this. We can, I know in the show notes, we're going to talk a little bit more about related topic, but I'm in the same boat. Like when I'm on a nice health streak and I've been eating healthy, I will start to crave the healthy food and my cravings for things like ice cream and junk food will fade away. But as soon as I reintroduce any of those junk foods into my diet, I'm like instantly hooked again. And I'm, and I'm I'm back on the train. It's so frustrating because, yeah, this is, this is a, a sort of a small pet peeve of mine, but it really irks me how much of culture is based around food. And I think that that's sort of part of the problem here, because especially with like what we're saying is we're able to adhere to these strict diets, at least for small portions of time. But eventually we find junk food again and we get hooked again. And one of the reasons is that it is difficult to enjoy social interactions with family and friends fully without partaking in communal food, which is usually like delicious food. Yes, Um, yes. And that's just a staple of culture. And historically, you can understand why that might be. But I think it's really dumb. A lot of people will really defend that, that like sitting around a table and eating together is really important. I don't think that's true. And I think that it's actually quite problematic that that food is such a central, I don't know, touch point of everything we do socially. Because it means you can't, you can't optimize your own food intake in any way. You are always subject to the weakest link in your group. Yeah, I do agree with you. That the social aspect of food, when you are on a diet, or you are trying to watch what you're consuming, that the social aspect of food can make it really difficult to stay on track. But I'm not willing to go as far as you and say that it's worthless. I think that there is something about how the nature of, of breaking bread with people that you maybe don't share much else with, like in terms of culture or background... But you do share this in common. Like we all sit down together and eat. And that is a shared experience that can build strong ties and be the beginning of a relationship. So I don't know. I Man, don't... I so disagree with you. <laughs> 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 we have we have so many random things in common. Like should we just drive our cars together? <laughs> There's many things we have in common with people. The shared experience. But food is a little I feel right, clearly food is is somewhat different than driving a car. You you don't agree? Is it though? I feel like, I don't, I don't know. Exactly the point you've made is the point that is repeatedly brought up by everybody I deal with. And I always feel like you're just buying into the mysticism of food. Like it's just an unfortunate human necessity. It's like breathing. Like, should we all go in a room and breathe together? The shared experience of breathing. And it's, it's like, I don't know. These are just like biological processes that we all partake in. I don't think that there's anything magic about them. But because we think they're magic, they've become integral to everything we do. No, but... Food also embodies people's culture, which, you know, breathing and driving an automobile do not in the same way. I guess that is true. Like the cultural cuisine of an individual from a different ethnicity than you is going to be really different. So you going to their house and eating food that they prepared for you that's aligned to like their cultural background is going to have there's like a lot of intangible benefits to that, I think. I feel that that is a little bit circular because the reason that it's, you know, the reason it's valuable to share food with people who have food from a different culture than you 
is that they think food is integral to their culture. But if we just all agreed food wasn't integral to culture, we would, you know, we would be free of this problem. We'd be like, no, it says it's just food, you know. Like, obviously, people have developed different foods, but people have developed different clothes and vehicles and I don't know. There's just, there's many other things. I think that I am in no position to stop society from doing this, and so I will forever be eating with people socially, <laughs> but I will resent it. Well, don't say, you don't can, say you never. You can make me eat with you, but you cannot make me like it. Uh, that's, I mean, don't, you never know. <laughs> In 50 years time, it may not be necessary anymore to sit down and... Oh, that's what we hope. To bring... Yeah, from caffeine fills to vitamin exactly. pills that actually work, that are actually absorbed by your body. Yeah, yeah. No, I uh, I do see what you're saying. I think, you know, for 80, 90% of my meals, not having to prepare and clean up um, what, it, you know, the pro- from yeah. the process of cooking would is ideal. Like, I would prefer to just be able to take something, but I still, I still believe that there's some... Uh, human element to to sitting down and to having a meal with somebody that is that's special and difficult to quantify. Yeah, it's just part of the the human experience, right? It, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Can't be escaped. Inside joke on episode one. Yeah, every, we're leaving everyone out outside of our. Uh, uh, we're gonna have to introduce them some point. I'm not sure quite how we. At, oh, at some point, I'm sure it'll come yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. So. So what, where were we? Oh, uh, well, we were just doing Prime Day. What else is new in your life, though? Anything else we should talk about? No, not at this moment. It's going to get brought up later in other parts of our show notes. So, what about you? Anything else? Anything new okay. in your life? Well, I finally finished the. Uh, I believe it's the most recent free economics book. Most recent or second most free most recent. It's called When to Rob a Bank or How to Rob a Bank. When to Rob a Bank. You'd think I would know this. I just finished the book yesterday. Clearly, you're paying really close attention. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a compilation of blog posts. Right, right. So for anybody that's not familiar with Freakonomics, I think Greg and I both have read or listened to a lot of their stuff. Um, but basically, it's an economist at the University of Chicago, which is historically a very prestigious economics program, and a journalist who I think originally worked at the New York Times, have teamed up. And originally, they wrote a book, and then they did a podcast for many years, and they've produced additional books and frankly most of the content has gone downhill i think we would agree as the time goes on yeah but this one was good despite it being you know more recent in the decline uh it's just a bunch of their blog posts curated by the two authors levitt and dubner and there were some genuinely interesting things in there that made you think but the best thing i could say about the book is that not only did i like it but it was really quick to read it took me all of like six days which for me is really fast i tend to really drag my feet on books unfortunately and i'm a very slow reader so i knocked that one out um yeah it was good have you read the freakonomics books i forget yes i have i've read the first two freakonomics books which they are in a similar style like they just each chapter mm-hmm. I be- if i remember correctly they go through some interesting problem or situation that some researcher has dug into and figures out like why incentives matter or why the structure of relationships can have an impact like the one that sticks out in my mind is between realtors and those selling their homes i think that was the first problem that i was introduced to from freakonomics yeah. and how there's like a principal agent problem occurring that it's within it's with the incentive structure is such that the re- re- realtor wants to move the property as quick as possible, even if that's not in the best interest of the home seller. Mm-hmm. So 
Yeah, I've read both of those books. However, I, I was aware of this third Freakonomics book, and I'm I'd like to hear what parts you thought were the best, or what the what your takeaways from it were. I uh, was I didn't read it simply because I partly because I knew it was a lot of their blog posts, um, just read you know taken from their website and put into a book. So I wasn't sure it was worth. Uh, I'm I'm in the same position as you. I take forever to read a book. So if I'm gonna if I'm gonna choose to read a book, I uh, I want it to be the like as impactful as it as it could be. Yeah. Well, this one's tough. So I just looked it up to make sure I was getting this right. So the books are Freakonomics, and then the second one is Super Freakonomics. Yes. The third one is Think Like a Freak, and I'm pretty sure I've read that one. But to be honest, I don't remember anything from it. And then this is the fourth and most recent, When to Rob a Bank. Ah, okay. So I haven't read... Huh, have I read Think Like a Freak? I'm not sure. I know I've read the first two, Freakonomics and Super Freakonomics. Yeah. Well, this one is 132 different blog posts. So it's so many different things. It's not like the first couple books where it's, you know, 12, 15 chapters. This is a bunch of separate things. And some are connected. Many are not. Some are written by guests. Um Nasib Talib makes an appearance, and he is just so obnoxious as usual. Uh, I forget. There's some other notable people. Dan- Daniel Kahneman is at least peripherally involved in a couple of the the blog posts because they really are just about the lives of the authors and when they've run into these people. Um, and it, yeah, it it was pretty good. I would, you know, I would recommend it, but I probably wouldn't recommend buying it. It wouldn't be worth. I don't know what it would cost, 20 bucks for the hardcover, mm. but it was interesting. So what was the, what were some of the most interesting blog posts in the book? What were some of the the best takeaways from the book? Um, Man, that's hard. Maybe, you know, one time I, I said to myself, every time I read a book now, I'm going to write down what my takeaways are if I had to summarize this book. And clearly I didn't do that with this one because I'm not sure I have anything actually. <laughs> um i'm just looking at the summary here to see if anything reminds me strong endorsement to our listeners yeah <laughs> read this book well, you won't remember anything i do think there's like two kinds of ways a book can make you smarter there's like you leave with information you didn't come in with and there's also your brain has been stimulated in such a way that you are you you're, the way you think is better and i think this one has a chance at the latter i don't think it did any of the former really mm. yeah i would say that the first two freakonomics books um really struck me in the latter the latter example that you described that i don't i don't remember like really specific pieces of information to that from those books but i do remember i do know for a fact that coming away from those books i thought about the world very differently and the way i approach yeah. problems changed a lot so i'm very thankful for those books as you mentioned like the content has changed i think freakonomics has been around for about a decade now so you know over the course of a decade you're going to the format and what you talk about and how the quality is bound to change. It's just you're not going to remain that consistent. But I'm incredibly thankful to to the whole Freakonomics team and uh, yeah. the fact and having well, read sadly, their books. I, I would still recommend them, the first two. Yeah. The first one in particular, I think, is really good. And one thing Freakonomics does incredibly well is introduce economic concepts to people who are outside economics. It yes. just it's yes. It's so good at it because I think – a lot of economics strikes people as academic and impractical. Um, and that book, like the the realtor thing that you mentioned, introduces things that are that are commonly accepted in economics, like the principal agent problem, that most people wouldn't even know based on their name. But it explains them in such a way that why they happen is obvious. So, like the na- principal agent problems in general are that um, someone you employ 
doesn't have the same incentives as you. So even though you're paying them to help you, they're not really going to help you quite the way you want. And this happens with real estate agents because you pay them to sell your house for the highest amount of money possible. But they don't get any extra money the longer your house is on the market. So they would really like to get done with you and move on to the next person. So they'll sell your house for a little bit less than you want it to be sold for, just in order to get rid of it and move on to the next one so they can make another commission. Right, exactly. And these ideas of like, yeah, of like why are economic concepts important in your daily life um, are just difficult to convey. And they did such a good job of that, I think. I also looked it up. It was published in 2005. So it's been out for 14 years now, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah, and I think you've you succinctly described what the value that I think is there is that um, I think it's Levitt. Levitt is the economist, Stephen Levitt. Um, exactly. Stephen yeah. Dubner, he's the author or the writer. But they both together um, are able to synthesize these economic concepts for a broad audience with a you know a general background. Uh, and I would say part part in due in part to Freakonomics is why I, I decided to study in the field of economics because I found the whole just everything they described and the mental models that you can use to navigate the world so fascinating i felt like it was like a superpower almost when i first learned about it yeah yeah that's <laughs> um, cool. yeah a big part another big one that i would mention is like and we're going to talk about it a little bit later but opportunity cost i think that is just an invaluable concept i use it all the time and it was, i was first introduced to it uh through economics yeah that's that is a really good point i think people people neglect it all the time I was talking to a friend just a couple days ago about uh, why I don't participate in more social events. And basically my explanation was like, it's not that I really hate the social events. It's just that the opportunity cost is quite high. Like as an introvert with a lot of hobbies, I really like being home and programming or reading or, you know, just like doing all the things I can do by myself. And so to give up that to go spend time with people is like a meaningful opportunity cost. And I need to really like the people in order for it to be worth it. Yeah, I'm sure they thought you were a robot and were heartless because I've said similar things. Yeah, that... <laughs> And the response is always like, yeah. you, what are you... Th- you need to recalibrate your brain because the way you think through things is just wrong. <laughs> that could have been the name for this podcast, Recalibrate Your Brain. Oh, it could still be. These, these, uh, <laughs> nothing's published yet. Maybe, maybe that's the show title. Like, the, oh, the yes. Title. No, you're right. I think that, I think that's a winner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, to go back to the book conversation, though. So I, I finished this book yesterday, and um, the same evening I went to Barnes Noble to start another book because there's there's been this one book on my list for quite some time that i really wanted to get started with and it's called thinking in bets by annie duke so annie duke is a past professional poker player but her history is actually very very interesting when you look at it beyond her poker career so now she's a management coach i think at least some of her time and she basically applies the concepts of chance in poker and assessing your decision-making via that framework to management decisions. So she comes in and she teaches CEOs and whatever. Um, but before she did poker, she actually did an undergrad in uh, psychology and English and then was was at least partway through a PhD program in cognitive psychology at Penn when she took a leave of absence and during her leave of absence ended up starting playing professional poker and then won like millions of dollars at it because she was amazing. (laughs) So she's very good at poker and the writing is quite good. But what I'm really interested in the book for is that it's the same content that she teaches at her managerial workshops where it's like assessing your decisions 
using a framework that accepts there is risk and uncertainty and everything not being results based but being process based mm, yes and uh i'm about two chapters in so far and it's it's quite good we'll this see. looks interesting back i might jump episode, on board with you and, and check it out yeah it's not terribly long so is it that they're just is she teaching managers how to think probabilistically is that is that a fair assessment of what's happening essentially here? something yeah. more nuanced mm-hmm essentially yeah so the first chapter to me was a little bit dull because you know we're both people who work in statistics so we hopefully have (laughs) something of a grasp of it yeah yeah and you know so she she goes back to these things that because of the content i read i've read about a million times but um people vilifying pete carroll in the super bowl maybe four years ago when he called a pass play at the end of the game and it got intercepted and it's like even at that time i thought i don't know like the common wisdom here is that that was the wrong call but the very fact that everybody thought it was wrong would indicate that the defense would be unprepared. Like doing such an unexpected action actually seems likely to produce positive effects, but the results were bad probably by pure chance. And so people will crush him. And similarly, uh, five having a model that said, uh, Trump had like a 36% chance of winning something in the thirties. And everybody was like, unbelievable. Five thirty eight was wrong. <laughs> it's like, well, things, things that are predicted to happen 36% of the time still need to happen. happen 36% of the time. Yes, exactly. Yeah. exactly. I mean, you can't say people are right in these situations, but you also don't have enough evidence to, to say that they're wrong, which is important. And so that's sort of how she starts off. And she introduces this to, I guess, her workshops as well as this book to prove to people that like you can't assess your decisions based on one outcome many good decisions have bad results and many bad decisions have good results yeah that's really interesting i agree with i agree with the examples that you brought up and also i i'll just mention as a tangent to the, the pete carroll seattle seahawks new england patriots game is that i uh i respect pete carroll for being willing to call the unconventional play in that moment because the incentives are yeah. such that he shouldn't. He should have handed the ball off to Marshawn Lynch. And had it not gone mm-hmm. well, nobody would have held him accountable. They would have said, you made the right call. Of course, that's what you should have done. Uh, but In fact, it's a classic principal agent problem. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> because the Yeah, because the people who really have a stake in the team winning want him to maximize their chance of success. But Pete Carroll is the agent. Actually, you would expect to have the incentives to like not want to get criticized by the media. And so to take the more conservative but lower you know, lower probability of winning approach of just running the ball. Right. I agree. So in this, I wonder if the later chapters will have more to say, but I'm curious how you, this is something that's stuck in my mind a little bit. So I recently read a book called um, Project Management for the Unofficial Project Manager. It was a, it's an interesting book. I had, I had a few insights to draw out of it, but I'm, it's, it falls in the vein of like classic business books where. uh, Sounds right up my alley. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. Whereas, like, I think that you could probably get the entire value out of like a fifteen-page pamphlet instead of the entire book. But it's yep, it was worth it's worth a read. I think still there's some really useful tools and concepts in there. But it, one thing that has that stuck with me is that they spend a significant portion of the book talking about how you planning the planning phase of any project is critical. It is the crux of the project, and if things don't get if things aren't done well during the planning phase, then the project is set on a wrong track that makes the likelihood for it to fail much higher. However, they don't speak at all about how to do a good job of projecting timelines or uncertainty in this case. 
because when you're starting a project and you're not you have an idea of what needs to be done but the actual particulars aren't clear until you get much closer to that to that that part of the project it's hard to accurately estimate how long any one thing will take and the and the distribution of, of how long a particular action will take has a really long tail to the right like it some things yes exactly right it's some some actions you can't they're going to take you 10x as long as you would have ever thought just because some weird bug or just an issue within your organization or something, you're just not going to be able to anticipate how long this takes. And then at that point, your entire project plan is worthless, right? If you have one of these mm-hmm. incredibly rare, uh, but not uncommon situations occur in your project. So it sounds like uh, in this book, thinking in bed, sounds like it might speak to some of that. So I'd be really interested to hear or read yeah. about how we'll see where that goes. Project- I, I hope it does. So one thing I guess I should note is that while what the author does now is management workshops and leadership workshops, or I guess I shouldn't say leadership. It is more about management. Um, I think the book isn't targeted at a business audience. It's just targeted at regular people, but it's thinking in terms of like, there are uncertainties in every decision you make, which is very important. So hopefully it gets to like more of a, I don't know if she prescribes a particular framework to say in every decision I make, I assign a probability of this type of success and of this type of success and of this type of failure. Although I guess anybody could do that on paper. It would just take a really long time. Yeah. And also it's it's easy to assign a single probability, but it really it's a distribution, right? And to me, that's where I always kind of get stuck too, is like, well, what's the right distribution? What's Yeah, that's true. And it's yeah, not really clear are... most in most situations, unless you get like some, some textbook type of problem that has a distribution fit to it already. Yeah. Well, and also, even if you're able to estimate the distribution and you're comfortable with your estimations, the problem is that many tasks are dependent on each other. Yes. So you know that, yeah, well, what's a good example? You know, you're doing a big project where you need approval from several other people in the company, for example. Um, and you know that it it's going to need to go through the the vice president first and then through the CEO. So you need to do these tasks sequentially. So you could say both of those are like a normal distribution and you can actually do the math pretty easily on like the first normal distribution plus the second normal distribution is the amount of total time that it will take. And you can form a distribution from these two together. But the problem is that those aren't independent. Yes. You know, there's many cases like this where if it took a long time to get through the the VP, it's probably because there's significant questions that need to be answered and the CEO is going to have the same questions. So that actually changes the distribution with CEO. And, you know, you need at that point, like, a very solid understanding of probability theory and also of, of just, like, math, of calculus. No, right. Because I think that's a an integral problem. Yes, it is. And it's like, yeah. I I can't solve that. No chance. No. I work yeah, I can't either. I can't either. Or it would be just be a significant problem. I'd have to invest a lot of time into figuring out, like, the joint probability yeah. distribution of these dependent distributions. That's a hard problem. So yeah. is it even worth going down that path? It's a hard problem right? we don't have time for. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that's the, the challenge. Of like, how, how often should we rely on heuristics? It's re- I think it's really very challenging because it's such an easy critique to be like, people need to spend more time on their decisions and be more numerate, like understand the numbers better. And yet, there simply isn't time or cognitive energy available to do that with most things. You get to choose a finite number of things in your life that you can feel that way about. Yeah, I totally agree. So I guess when we reconvene in a few weeks, I'll get to hear if, if this book has answered any of my questions and I won't have to do any of the reading. So yeah, it's beautiful. Hopefully. I mean, that's ideal. Yeah. I am just spark notes. 
All right. Well, we should probably uh, should probably get to some topics we actually have on our our topic list for today. What a novel idea. Do you have any that you really <laughs> want to hit on? Any priority ones for today? Let's see. So I was particularly interested in talking about Gray's light bulb theory. I actually went back and re-listened to part of the episode, episode three, oh, cool. where they talk about that. Because I really like that idea, and that's that's one that sticks with me. Partly because it has to do with opportunity cost. You know, it could reframe that problem. It's opportunity cost problems. Mm-hmm. Um what about you, though? Is there anything on this li- above that that we should sh- we should hit first? Well, I think uh, let, let's talk about who Gray is. So okay. we, we mentioned this light bulb theory, <clears throat> but I think we should really call out that the inspiration for this podcast is largely uh, another podcast that we both listen to called Cortex. Uh, it's hosted by two uh, two men who live in London, CGP Gray and Mike Hurley, and essentially they talk about their own productivity practices and greg and i have a lot of thoughts about this and so we sort of felt like you know we have we have so much to say we could definitely have our own podcast it will probably not be of nearly the quality or have as cool a name but here we are and uh one of the things that that gray specifically has talked about of the two of them is this theory he has about a finite amount of energy to put into each part of his life right do you want to do you want to add some color and like talk about why it interests you? Yeah, yeah. So the the idea is that as an individual, you can only generate so much output uh, in a given day or a given week or a given month. And to to keep it simple, um, you could think of this as like a hundred watts of energy, right? You can only produce a hundred watts of energy uh, on a given day. And there are only, to Gray, I I slightly disagree with him in this area, and we can get to that, but to Gray, there are only four light bulbs that you could power with your uh, 100 watts of energy. And the groups are family, friends, health, and work. And you, so your decision comes of how do you want to distribute your wattage across those four light bulbs. You could... Choose to power all four light bulbs equally with 25 watts, but then all four of them are quite dim and you're not, you're just average or mediocre in all four, not excelling in any one, right? Or you could choose to lower particular light bulbs and then invest that, invest that energy into other ones so that you are producing more in that area. And I, I agree that with gray that this analogy is basically true that people only have a finite amount of energy or focus or discipline to get work done and uh you have to make choices between how you're going to spend your energy across these four areas yeah and i i agree it's a pretty good model um i actually was just googling to see where this quote comes from a quote that popped into my head immediately all models are wrong but some are useful. Apparently it came from a guy named uh, George Box. Yes. Yeah. But, that's an excellent uh, quote. You know, excellent this quote. is, to me, this is a very good example of a model that is wrong. You know, your, your energy isn't exactly additive. You know, sometimes uh, putting more energy into one light bulb gives you more or less energy to spend on the others. Yeah. But this is a useful way of thinking about your life and that you only have so much time and energy to expend and you have to distribute it across some discrete and all very important aspects of your life yeah yeah and what really interests me the reason why i like this model and and i'm interested in it 
is because you can just think of this as opportunity cost. So for like every minute or every amount, like every unit of energy that you spend on your work, you can't also spend with your friends and family, right? Mm -hmm. So it already just kind of leaned into my, what I was already using as a, as a mental framework, but just put more definition around the groupings and how energy can be spent. But I know for myself, uh, I, I'm trying to think through timelines here. So about two years ago, I turned up the ener- the wattage on my health light bulb very, very high. I was very uh, disciplined in what I consumed and was disciplined in exercising. And it played great dividends. I'm very pleased that I did it. But uh, a year, about a year ago, I went back to school for a graduate degree. And when I did that, my health light bulb just plummeted. And it wasn't due to a choice as so much as I just didn't have enough energy to ex- to output to sustain the wattage across all these light bulbs. Um, and I thought I could. I made plans for myself that, you know, I would go to school on these evenings, execute my homework on other nights and still have time to, you know, food prep and hit the gym. And that was just overly optimistic. I was just being unrealistic with myself. <laughs> which is easy to do. So I think it's helpful to keep in mind, you know, be realistic with yourself and say, you know, you can only, you only have a finite amount of, you only have a hundred percent of energy. You only have a hundred Watts and how are you going to choose to spend it? Um, yeah. So, and as I, I'm about, I will be returning for another semester in a couple of weeks. So this has been on my mind of, you know, what can I do differently so that the health light bulb doesn't hit 0% again. And I can actually maintain some, some reasonable level of energy being put there because I think it's important. Yeah. And just for context, although you say returning, it's not like you're taking the train to Hogwarts. You're just going to school at night. It's not That's it's not true. like you go off to a an institution somewhere far. <laughs> I just Yeah, I just and they restrict and they restrict context. me from being able to actually say <laughs> they they lock me in the room. Yeah, and in the, say, you can the wizarding say. school it's all magic, <laughs> no exercise. No, no. Yeah. I yeah, I am not leaving anywhere. I'm just returning to night school. It's simply that uh you know, it makes for a long day to get up at, you know, 5 a.m. to hit the gym and you're not returning home till 9 p.m. from your night classes, right? That's just not a sustainable yeah. thing to do, at least not for me. Some people maybe are exceptional and can do that. I've, I found that I can't. It's just not possible. I found the same thing. Yeah. So now, so I, at a high level, I agree with this. But now, because this is what I tend to do with things, I will, I will pick on the small things that I do disagree with about this model. Um, I think there's a few issues. One is that some of the light bulbs do feed back into the other light bulbs, you know. So by turning up the health light bulb, if you put in 10 watts to the health light bulb, I think you get maybe like two extra watts to distribute among the other bulbs, if that makes sense. You know, if you start sleeping more and eating better and exercising more, you actually do make some net gains. You like increase your total wattage to 102 watts instead of 100. Um and while this isn't huge, I think it does matter because it helps you justify putting in more to the health light bulb in general. Yeah, yeah, I and agree. That can, be, that can be true of some of the others as well. Like if you're getting fulfillment out of any of the bulbs, if you find work, friends, or family fulfilling, it can be, it can have um, reminishing returns. I don't know what the opposite of diminishing returns is, uh, but it, it can it can actually pay off in ways you don't expect, I guess. 
The other thing that I would point out is, at least in my experience, although this definitely may be something about me, because I've not found other people to be quite as dramatic as me in this regard, I go through giant spikes in how much wattage I produce. Like, I probably am on average producing 100 watts or something, like pretty typical output, but there will be two-month periods where I am consistently never above 60 watts, and basically I'm just able to do my job and minimal exercise. And then I will go through two months where I like make a bunch of extracurricular commitments and I play a bunch of sports and I exercise way more than usual and I read a bunch of books and it's just like, wow, like I am just going to live like this forever. But no, I crash and then I play video games all weekend for one weekend and I go back to doing nothing in my life except my job. And this this huge spike, I, I can't explain where it comes from. It doesn't seem related to my actions, although maybe it is, but it really seems more like mental fatigue like at some point my brain is just like nope you're not gonna not gonna have the energy to be so productive anymore and you crash back to earth yeah or way below average earth actually no i agree i have had similar experiences but i can't quite figure out if it's due like what is the cause of this is this like a cyclical trend that i just put myself on and that if i maybe change my behavior a little bit the trend would the seasonality of the trend would would dissipate and just become you know, I'd maybe be able to maintain a hundred wattage all the time, or if it, or is it just natural? Like you can't overcome this, and you're always going to have peaks and troughs yeah. in your ability to produce. That is a good question, and I, I really wish I knew the answer, and I wish I knew how to improve this. But it does give me hope for the future that, you know, as I get older and know myself better, I can have more of the peaks and fewer of the troughs. I think that's one of the benefits of getting older. While some some aspects like your you know your your physical body and even your mental acuity in some cases do decline you get to know yourself better and figure out what you know what actions you can take to keep your brain at its best in cases like that to to stay in your productivity upswings yeah that's true that's true and i i hadn't thought about this as well some some light bulbs in my life i refuse to let go below certain levels so that kind of restricts your your options between trade-offs across light bulbs. And I can I mm-hmm. I still think I'm making the right decision to not allow my family light bulb to go less than, you know, 20 watts, but it does make it harder to make choices because um I agree with you that your health uh like health or you know, your friends could have additive benefits to the total output. So maybe some time spent with friends rejuvenates you and allows you to add a few extra watts to health or to work. But when it is crunch time or when you have large projects or large amounts of work in front of you, it's just so much, it feels a lot easier to shirk your responsibilities in those areas yeah. and just reinvest it at the mo- in the moment. And because I'm unwilling to let certain light bulbs to, to ever decrease with some, below a certain level... It feels like I'm always stealing from, you know, the same area. Like I'm always, to me, whenever, whenever my commitments become too much, like health is a light bulb that I'm, it's easy to steal from. It's easy to not go to the yes. gym and it's easy to not put the work in and your diet. Um, and the, the, the negative, the negative consequences of that are uh, in the long run. You know, I don't feel that terrible the next day, but I will in a year if I don't change my behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It is. It it basically restricts your decision space when you have certain light bulbs locked to certain levels. Yeah. And I think actually Gray says the same thing in the podcast. 
that he he doesn't let his family like bob go below a certain level and so that restricts essentially his options for things yes. and so health takes a hit i mm-hmm. think that's probably a common problem for people yeah i was gonna say i just think that the health light bulb is probably the one where most people steal you know have problems with that they're, they they debit against it uh more than the others when, yeah. when things when deci- hard decisions need to be made yeah and uh, yeah that uh, it does make a lot of sense my model i guess this is still sort of the model i use but for me the the current division of light bulbs that we've talked about is not really ideal for one thing because i am not married or in a relationship and my my actual biological family lives fairly far away so i see them a few times a year and i call them regularly but it's not you know it's not taking 20 percent of my time i think it would be difficult for me to say that family is even or even like really could be 20 percent of my time living so far away um so you know family is not taking up the the same wattage as other bulbs and nor is friends in most cases like you know i i would say i see friends a few times a week and like we work out some mornings and stuff but again friends it would be even difficult for me to tune up that light bulb to 20 or 25 percent of my time i think that's just not how it works um but you know work and health take up a lot of my time and then i think like what what takes up the rest of my time and it's things like what i would consider general extracurriculars so i do a lot of personal projects and reading and then some just like time wasting um but it's interesting like how do i when i step back and look at my personal projects through this framework and for context for listeners i uh you know i like to do programming projects in my free time recently i've been working on some home automation stuff building building programs that will turn on and off my lights with certain triggers etc you know obviously a lot of that stuff particularly that example i could do with tools that already exist i could just download the hue app and i could just use the hue app (laughs) rather than doing all this stuff um and this podcast is another example you know i don't need to make this podcast and uh realistically if we're assessing with with the appropriate uncertainty we don't know if this podcast will be a success but chances are we're probably not going to make money from it or anything so you know why do i have this why do i have this like fifth maybe fifth and sixth light bulbs that i'm putting energy into and to me i think about it as like a long-term dividend of increasing the wattage because i think personal enrichment so personal projects um reading books these are things that they're sort of like investments in the power plant where you say i'm going to put in time now in order to make improvements that will in the long term allow me to produce more total wattage to put against the other bulbs and because i enjoy it i mean certainly some of it is that i enjoy it but if i had to like rationalize it productivity wise i do think that that apportioning some of your time to personal enrichment activities has long-term returns that allow you to put more energy into the other bulbs eventually it's just difficult you know you need to have capital to invest in your your uh power plant essentially yeah i really like your analogy there with investments you're investing in your power plant so that in the future you can generate more wattage but i also want to circle back and mention that I agree with you that the category, the four categories that Gray lays out, I don't think are comprehensive. I would add, a, it sounds like you would too, like a hobbies or a personal projects light bulb. And to me, school is is a distinct light bulb separate from any of the others. Some might categorize that under work. To me, it's, it's different. But I think, uh, so it's possible that, you know, as it, Every individual has somewhat different light bulbs, right? You just make the choice about which ones exist in your life. Um, 
But I hadn't considered how an investment in your personal projects may pay long-term dividends in your ability to produce more in the future. I think that that's probably true of friends and family as well, to an extent, that having healthy social relationships like that keep you balanced and keep you your energy levels high and when they might otherwise not be. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably true. And it really depends because some people... It really just depends on what you talk about with your friends and family, right? Because I know I have certain friends where the things I discuss with them keep my brain active in a way that in most social interactions it is not. Um, you know, when I when I talk to people about, like, how we should change government policy and stuff, it's like, this is stuff while I may never be able to put it directly to use, the fact that I'm talking about it is an investment in my power plant. Like, it is actually keeping me on my mental toes and giving me new ideas that will pay dividends in other parts of my work. On the other hand, there's times where social interactions are just fun. Like, uh, you know, you just go and play football or something. Right, uh, right. Although I guess that's health. But, you, you know, there are things that are purely social and they're just burning off steam and, and uh, spending time with people you like. Yeah, I agree. Um, you bring up an interesting point, like you were saying, that you're hitting like two light bulbs at once. I wonder if it would make sense to try to do such a thing. To, to really focus on, say, I'm, I'm looking for activities that invest into both these light bulbs simultaneously so that I'm getting uh, more bang for my buck, as it were. I hadn't thought of, I haven't really considered yeah. that as well. You could, you could try to bring one of your family members to class with you exactly. and ask them to do your job. <laughs> then you could hit three light bulbs at once. Perfect. Exactly. This is the type of thing I'm looking for in this podcast, Ethan. These ideas. <laughs> Synergies, Greg. Synergies. Synergies. This is why we read our business books. Exactly. Exactly. No, I think also along those lines, like, I think that this podcast is an investment both into my friend's light bulb and to my personal project's light bulb. So, uh, yeah. I maybe I'm already getting these things and just haven't realized it, it would seem. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think that's that's the case in a lot of these. Yeah. I was going to make an analogy about how circuits work. I was going to be like, yeah, I think there's a case where, like, you know, you can light up two light bulbs more in a parallel circuit than a serial circuit. And then I realized I have literally no idea what I'm talking about. And that's probably completely wrong. <laughs> so I'm going to stay away yeah. from that one. If you, Physics was not my strong point me in college. Either. Me either. I would be totally lost. I'd, I'd just say, okay, Ethan, yeah, that sounds great. one one other thing i'd like to talk about today is uh is our our different usage of ipads so you recently got an ipad right how long ago was that i think i've had it for three weeks now four weeks so still pretty pretty new still pretty new so i'm curious what has your experience been like in terms of what what sort of work you want to do on your iPad that you used to do on your computer or like what sort of work you do on your iPad that in the past you didn't do at all. And I shouldn't term it work because that sort of closes the definition. What sorts of things you do on your iPad? Yeah, that's a good question. I will say that all of this is still somewhat early. Like I need to spend a little more time thinking of exactly how I want to use my iPad and what things come across. I just haven't put the time in yet. But so far I use it uh, in a couple different ways. One is it's a media consumption device. I watch videos. I read books um, on it. It's excellent for that. I really like it. Um, I also use it as a mobile computer. So I have a MacBook that I could take with me, but it's quite cumbersome to bring it everywhere. So when I go to work or if I'm going out to a, a coffee shop or something, 
and I might want to be able to look something up like the show notes for this or some other type of work, um, some light, you know, text type work, I just bring the iPad and I've loved that experience. That's been fantastic to just be able to quickly pull up an email application or the Google Drive and to add some quick thoughts or edit things. I've really, really enjoyed that, uh, that aspect of it. And so would you not have done things like that on your phone? No, never, ever. I just, the small screen, I use an iPhone 8 and the screen is just not conducive for that. Um, The iPad still has some limitations, but a lot of that's overcome, I think, by the larger screen and the more robust apps that exist there. Interesting. So if you, you know, to give a concrete example, if you thought of a topic you wanted to add to our episode one show notes and you didn't have your iPad or computer, you think you wouldn't you wouldn't even bother doing it on your phone? Would you like make a note about it on your phone? I would. Or would, I would. you just So the yeah. way I would well, okay. so this is we could talk more about this, but I've in the over the past two or three months, and do in part two, Cortex, I have looked at different parts of my life and re engineered them to be more effective. And part of that is capturing my ideas on a day to day basis. So if I were out and I had and I was struck with some inspiration of an idea, a topic and I didn't have access to my computer or my iPad, I would probably pull my iPhone out and open the Notes app and write down, write it down there. And that's going to sync back to my iPad into my computer. So when I'm on one of those machines, I would, when I do a weekly review, I will look through the notes, see that it's there, and add it to the document. But I won't, I wouldn't, I doubt I would go to the actual Google Drive app in the Google Docs app and open it there. I just haven't had great experiences on the smaller screen. I just think it would be easier to quickly just add a a text note in in the notes app and then just go back later and do it. Yeah, that makes sense. That's interesting. I do the same thing about keeping thoughts notes Uh, at various times in my life. I'm more diligent than others, but originally that was also inspired by gray. And I think he even mentions that that originally comes from the getting things done system. It is, and yeah. It it is very useful to me. Yeah, I every I, Sunday I have a a reminder to go through all my notes. Yes, me too. I've also incorporated the weekly reviews in my in my life for that very reason to just go through everything my notes app and all my to dos and make sure everything's staying up to date and add things I've forgotten forgotten to add. Yeah. And the, so the last thing that I've used my iPad for is just light productivity. So if I'm like mm-hmm. sitting on the couch and I need to check my my email, whether it's school or work, I, I'll just do it from there to quickly make sure I haven't missed anything. Or another thing is that I use the budgeting app, uh, YNAB, You Need a Budget. And that's just always running in the background, collecting my transactions that are, that are going on. And those transactions need to be categorized or approved and... So if I'm sitting there and I know that I've done like a lot of purchasing in the past few days, I will just open up the app and see what's come through and just categorize and get a process. And I, I like that because it, it reduces the friction to me to entering these things so that because a part of my weekly review is to formally go through and make sure that for the past week, everything in YNAB is processed. And if I didn't have the iPad, I would come in on that weekly review and there'll be, I don't know, 20 or 30 or 40 possible transactions, which can just feel overwhelming. But since I'm able to knock Mm -hmm. it out in small chunks throughout the week without much effort, it makes that process a lot smoother. Yeah. So I want to go back to the email thing though. So 
if you do, do you mean that you go through emails that you've received but haven't opened yet or you respond to emails that you've meant to respond to yes i go through emails that i haven't read yet and i'll categorize them and that's all okay. i do i have responded to emails occasionally on the ipad but i will only do that if i have my keyboard with me my bluetooth keyboard because i i don't really like typing on the yeah the on-screen keyboard as much but i still think it's helpful to go through to see what's there so that i can make a note in to do to doist or something to say like respond to this email and also there's some emails where i need a little time to kind of chew on what's been mentioned there so that gives me the ability to read it and see what's going on and then i have a i have some time between when i've read it and when i'm next at when i'm at my computer next and i'm ready to respond interesting that that's very interesting to me because I like my iPad very much, but a lot of the things you mentioned, and maybe all of them, are things I would do on my phone. If I get an email, I open it on my phone. If I need to update the Google Docs, I do it on my phone. Which which phone are you using? I I have a very large phone, and so I wonder how much of it is attributable to the uh, phone that I have versus my personal work style. But I actually think it's more about my work style. I really like things to get done as soon as they come into my head or they alert me in some way. So I've heard many people tell me how they like to turn off notifications on their phone for certain times when they're working and things like that. And that's just a thing that I don't do. Even thing, even people who I think have a lot in common with me, like I think you and I work very similarly. I listen to Gray on his podcasts and I think he sounds like he works similarly to me. But I just want things done as fast as possible. And that was one of the motivations for getting a larger phone because I thought if I only have my phone with me, I'm still going to do that task immediately. As painful as it is to use Google Docs on the phone, the, the interface is terrible. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna do it right then because I want to know the task is done and I can move along. And same with emails. Emails get deleted or not always, but often put in folders from my phone when possible. Yeah, we do work really differently in that. Because I do not like being interrupted throughout the day. I'm very much in the camp of restricting notifications, especially during certain hours, working hours. Which, to the listeners, if you know how to do this on iOS, please let me know. Because (laughs) I cannot figure out how to do time-based notifications. What I would prefer is that I would lock down my entire phone for between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m., I think. And only let a handful of apps get through that barrier. But as far as I can tell, I can't, I can't just, it's not simple to do that in iOS. I haven't been able to figure it out. But I, I very much am in the camp of like reducing noise, reducing notifications and things that could grab my attention when I'm trying to work because I'm, I want to stay focused on the task at hand. And I know for myself, if I, There are high transition costs for me between tasks, even if it's something as simple as responding to a quick email or jotting down an idea or like making a small edit on a Google Docs. Switching between that and what I was previously working on is really challenging for me. And it can be hard for me to get back on track if I've deviated. Yeah. I don't know how different I am in that. Actually, I have a lot of thoughts on that particular topic, but maybe we should save it because... I want to still finish talking about iPads, but that I think that is a topic for another day that we should cover in, in great depth because I have a lot of thoughts on switching costs. Okay, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, on iPads, so I'll talk a little bit about how I use mine. So I've had an iPad for 
uh, eight months now. I've had a new iPad for eight months. I actually got an iPad when I was in early college and didn't really know what to do with it. So I used it to watch videos and like occasionally read, but didn't really use it for anything else. Uh, and then it got old, you know, and it started to be slow enough by the time I had a full-time job that it wasn't, it wasn't really a thing that supplemented my productivity life at all. So in the iPad months that I've had, the last seven or eight, um, I have found a few uses for it, but honestly, the, still the things it's best for are reading and videos, which makes me feel kind of foolish having such an expensive device that I like to read and watch videos on, but it is such an excellent device for those purposes. It is just so nice in all the small ways, um, and it's it's a classic Apple thing where it's like, it just is nice. Like, I couldn't tell you exactly why it's nice. I'm sure all the same features are supported on Android tablets, but I can tell you having used them that I just don't like it. <laughs> um, and I think there's like real value to that, especially because part of what I view as a benefit of the iPad is I never feel dread approaching the iPad where as much as I love my MacBook, I do feel dread sometimes approaching my MacBook because it's going to force me to do some task I really don't want to do. There's really no tasks like that that I do on my iPad. So my iPad is a source of joy. I go and I sit in my reading chair and I take the iPad and I catch up on some articles or I read a book or I even sometimes watch a video. Um, It is okay for doing actual tasks. When I first bought it, I thought, you know, Every day I carry to work my work laptop and my personal laptop because at lunch I like to get on my personal laptop and do some personal stuff, um, respond to emails, even do some programming on a personal project. And I thought I will no longer need to take my personal laptop to work. But in fact, the the new state (laughs) upon which I have converged is that now to work I take two laptops and an iPad every day, (laughs) which is is in, in fact even more superfluous stuff. And some days I will take my iPad to lunch with me, but most days I will take my MacBook Pro because I want to be able to, you know, I want the full power of the computer. I want terminal access. I want to be able to SSH into another machine, which is possible via the iPad, but kind of annoying. And what I found is I have these specific lists of tasks for which the iPad is best, but it is a narrow list. And so usually if my MacBook Pro is available, uh, I will find a way to use that instead, even if it means carrying an extra computer to work every day. Interesting. I wasn't. I did not expect you to say that you just simply added the iPad. I thought you might choose on a given day what computer you were going to take out with you based on what you what you think you might want to do on personal for personal personal work. So I find that in, <laughs> you've simply just added like three more pounds to your to your bag every day. I have. <laughs> well, you know, this is where for me trade offs are different than for most people. I guess. If I, you know, if I could buy a 17-inch MacBook Pro, I would have one. It's just there's a big rush in over the last 10 years towards smaller and lighter devices. And I am just not sensitive to small and light at all. I just want the nicest one. And I want an enormous screen. You know, you'll sell me a 24-inch MacBook Pro, you know, I'll buy a bigger <laughs> MacBook. <laughs> I want a giant computer screen at all times. Because I think maybe this is just the nature of being a power user. You're so... You know, you care so much about the things you can do on the device and, and your skills with the device are, are quite good that other things just seem irrelevant. You know, it just doesn't matter that much to me to get an extra pound back. What I want is the most powerful computer that does everything I want. And so 
the only cases where the iPad is truly superior on merits, not just on convenience, are really like reading and video is what I found. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I think that the iPad really does excel in those two areas. I agree. Like, I totally resonate with your feeling of like you can't put your finger on what it is, but just using the iPad is a joyful experience. And that's not to say that, you you know, I don't want to spark anything between Apple and Android. I'm sure Android's great. I used to use Android years ago, but for consuming media, the iPad, in my experience, is the, is the best device that I've found. iOS on a slightly larger screen is just a so much better experience compared to the iPhone, I think. But Yeah, I, I do agree with that, yeah. I, and I also agree with you that having, like, I would buy a 17-inch MacBook Pro had, had it existed when I went and got my computer. Or, a tw- you know, I'd go up, I don't know how far exactly I'd go, but I'd be willing to experiment with 20, 21 inches, possibly, because I agree. Like, I'm somewhat of a power user, having that nice screen, real estate, and a, more space on the keyboard and a larger trackpad all sound really appealing to me. Uh, but with that, if there were such a thing, right, as a pro, a pro, pro MacBook Pro, right, a, a 20 inch, 24 <laughs> inch, I would, I would start to care a lot more about the lightness of my iPad because that's going to become my mobile computer. It's going to really start to take in a role of, I want this thing to be really light and easy to move around because my, though I'm glad I, to have the larger computer, it is becoming more cumbersome to me. And I wouldn't want to have yeah. to always uh, bring that with me to do to do to do my work. But I and I also want to mention that using the iPad, if you are a pro user, you are going to be disappointed in the iPad for that for those use cases. I haven't found that to be an appealing aspect at all. Um, programming yeah. on the iPad is basically non-existent. I, you can SSH into another computer where you you know some Linux box and do. Right there, you know, do coding there, but I feel that you're just better off bringing bringing an actual computer with you if that's your intention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. It's very frustrating. Um, so I use the, I believe it's called the Magic Keyboard. Uh, maybe that's wrong. It's the it's it's whatever the standard case is that Apple sells for the iPad that also has a keyboard attached. Yeah, yeah. And I smart. use that. And one, you know, this sounds so minor, but. One truly, truly deal-breaking feature is that you cannot remap the escape key or the caps lock key. So I usually make some customizations on my keyboard, and I want caps lock to actually perform the escape function. Yes, Because no one has ever used caps lock, except your grandma when she sent you an email in all caps accidentally. (laughs) Uh, There's no function. There's just no function for the caps lock key. No. But the escape key comes up in a lot of cases, particularly in programming, a number of text editors that you use for programming heavily rely on you using the escape key in order to to, to type quickly. And I use one called Vim, which is very old and sort of has a cult following. And your ability to use the escape key is, you know, it is among the most important things. And without the the possibility of making an escape key on the, the keyboard I have, which doesn't even have an escape key on the iPad, I can't program. Like, I feel just crippled. It, it would be like if you told someone... Uh, I don't know if you like told a professional painter to use their left hand. It's like you just you have taken away the tools that I need in order to do my job, and so the iPad remains just essentially useless to me for programming. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally in the same boat with with the remapping of the keys as well. I mean, it's critical for me that I be able to 
remap that escape to a cap lock. It just makes your life so much better if you're a Vim user. Um, it does. People don't understand, but it's. I know it sounds like such a thing I've done in the last three years. Yeah, it sounds like such a minor thing. Like it, it should have almost no impact, but it really changes everything. It makes Vim the Vim experience so much nicer. Um, it's just it much does. much more natural feeling to to hit that cap locks key versus having to reach up for the escape key. Um, it's so funny. People say the people say the touch bar wasn't any good and didn't didn't do anything valuable for users, but it did something valuable for me because it real it made me realize that I didn't like hitting the escape key that was all the way up there. Yeah, and especially <laughs> on the touch bar, I was like, well, this is even more more terrible than it was before. Yeah, and that's when I learned about remapping keys. Yeah, I would say you've brought up my pet one of my biggest pet peeves with my MacBook Pro, and that is the touch bar. I just don't get it. I don't get it. It's dumb. It's like actually, yeah. I mean, I like the fingerprint sensor, but you know, you don't need the entire light bar to do to accomplish that. And I, I never use it. The only Here. function that it serves for me is that I put a screen capture shortcut in the light bar, so it's always there. Because I used to always forget the mm-hmm. keyboard shortcut to do it, so I can just simply tap the screen capture button and I'm ready to go. So I guess there's that, but I'm not that sure it's nice. worth. Yeah, not sure it's yeah. worth it, really. One one thing I would say about the touch bar is it has been an abject failure. (laughs) I think think most people agree the touch bar is terrible and provides no useful functionality pretty much ever unless you did what you did, which, you know, I'm sure literally tens of people on all of planet Earth have tried to do that where they (laughs) have a custom shortcut to the touch bar. Um, Even I haven't done that. But I, I will say that I think... It may have been a good decision in the same way we were talking about how you can't judge decisions purely results oriented. I think that there was a possibility a few major apps would would like jump on the touch bar like Chrome would support the touch bar really well or like some other app would find an innovative way to use it and it would turn out to be really cool. But it just never got any adoption. And maybe part of that apple should have seen coming especially because macbook pros are not actually that common a computer compared to most of the market but i don't think that it was an insane thing to do it just has turned out very poorly yeah yeah i don't i don't question i don't question the validity of it at the time right because this thing probably took multiple years to develop to ideate develop and iterate on them to get it into the computer so when you're starting that when you're starting from the from the beginning you don't really know exactly how things are going to play out, right? You're you're making some big bets that this will get adopted and things will be developed for it. But as you say, it just hasn't panned out, and I don't find it useful at all. If anything, it's a little distracting because moving between apps will yeah. cause the light bar mm-hmm. to totally like shift and change, and new colors pop up, and I'm like, my eyes are just drawn to this, you know, changing effect. I'm like, what's happening? I look down, I'm like, of course, this is worthless. Like, there's nothing happening down there that's worthwhile. It's yeah. it's just. <laughs> I shouldn't, I, and I try to fight biggest, my brain to get distracted to, from it. Yeah, the biggest annoyance is sometimes I will reach up to hit uh, one of the number keys and miss a little bit and accidentally touch the touch bar. And because it's not pressure sensitive, like, you know, it's like an iPad, you just touch anything and it's a touch screen, so it activates. I will find myself switching browser tabs or like triggering weird actions in the finder and just being confused and realizing it's because I've accidentally hit the touch bar. Mm. And that, ah, drives me crazy. Yeah, that is bad. That is really bad. Well, we could probably rant about the touch bar all day. Yeah, we could. Anything else you want to hit on before we go? Um, let me think. Let me look through here. Um, I put this Russian face app on here. 
I thought that could be interesting, but we could save that for another time. That's just more about like just J- more in general uh, data, data security, data, data privacy. But I thought this was a really relevant and timely example that that ha- that occurred just before we recorded. Yeah, I haven't read this. I actually have not even used the app. That's good. Don't don't use the app. Um, well, I guess okay. I can just tell you. I can just tell you about my experience. So there's a lot of um, things are not quite. There's a lot of there's a lot of speculation online. Well, people have read the terms and uh, the terms and conditions, and they are good in my opinion, uh, based on my non legal uh, opinion. That it sounds like you are signing over a lot of your rights um, about the pictures that you upload to this app. But, but I'll just back up and, and mention that it seems that this app was released sometime during the week, this week. What was, what was this week? Uh, want to get a date. What was the, what was the, what was Sunday? Oh, what was last Sunday? The yeah. 14th. It was the fourth. So it looks like it was released some week during the 14th or th- this is when it hit, when it went viral was during this week. And, uh, what what this app does, it seems, is that you can take a picture either within the app or upload in a picture that you've already taken into the app, and it will apply some face filtering to your picture. Uh, that will the the main feature is that it ages you. It will make you look as if you were forty years older than you actually are. And of the pictures I've seen, it seems to do a really good job of the, the face aging, right? It yeah, makes... I agree. I've seen some as well, and it's actually very impressive. Yeah. Right, yeah. So the tech underneath it is really good. They've done a great job of, of what, whatever they're doing to age these pictures. It looks really good. Uh, so this app went viral, and there were many people sharing their aged pictures on Facebook and on Twitter. And I think it was Wednesday. Um, Wednesday morning, my wife mentioned that she was seeing all these aged faces and was remarking on it and kind of laughing at it and immediately in my mind i i thought like do not do not upload anything to this app and i said <laughs> and i said as much to her i said you know don't do not do this like do not put your picture on this don't download the app they'll steal your face they'll steal your <laughs> yeah. face no they're gonna steal your likeness right and uh and so she 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 heeded my warning and didn't, and I'm very thankful thankful of that. So, but then not even 24 hours after after I had first heard about this application, there were multiple news reports and even uh, things from the U.S. Senate. Actually, uh, the Senate Majority Leader um, Chuck Schumer put out some type of letter or release that he wants the FBI, CIA, somebody to investigate this application and how the data is being used and what's going on because people started to sift through the terms and conditions and there were some really suspicious suspicious parts to it uh first was that i think the first thing that caught people's attention was that the uh the headquarters of the company that owns this app is in saint petersburg russia which for a lot of people would immediately set off red flags (laughs) Uh, and be a cause for concern. Um, not to simply say that that's justification enough to not use something, but it is. You know, it can cause it causes concern. I think, especially with lots of the thing, the thing, recent uh, technological hacking that has occurred over the past couple years. And so then, uh, I found this NPR article. It says Democrats issue warning against the Russian-based face morphing app, and in it there was an interesting quote from someone named Liz Sullivan O'Sullivan. 
and it was that their the impression her impression was that it was honestly uh, shocked that so many people like currently in the climate that we exist were so willing to just upload their pictures to unknown servers without understanding where their data was going or what was happening to it or what conditions terms and conditions they were agreeing to by doing this and I thought it was just a, an interesting topic to discuss of of you know data privacy in data privacy in 2019 we both are work in a data science field we work with people's data daily um so we have some i think we have an interesting perspective on this yeah i think I mean, it, this is such a good illustration of uh of an effect that i think is under underappreciated um top line top line summary of my feelings is that data privacy is a collective action problem which is another economics term um essentially individuals have incentives that will lead to bad things for the whole group if they all act on their individual incentives so you know it's obvious that people derive more benefit from facebook than they they see downside in giving up a lot of their private data because facebook facebook only has two functions showing you pictures of of uh well, three functions showing you pictures of your cousin's children, um, allowing you to see the political beliefs of your friends who are yelling and giving your data to everyone that can ask for it. So it's just it's kind of funny because people don't care and people continue to use Facebook. So obviously the utility they're gaining from Facebook outweighs the risk they perceive. Um, and it's obvious people, you know, people aren't going to change. Ten people will unsubscribe from Facebook, but I'm sure 20 are joining at the same time. Um, but this, this illustrates just how strong that effect is because this is even less benefit. You know, the only benefit people get out of this is just seeing a picture of themselves aged. And yet even then that outweighs people's reservations about data privacy. People just don't really care about data privacy until it's in the aggregate. And when suddenly everybody's data is exposed and you realize the, the massively damaging effects of these things, obviously there are exceptions, um, things like the Equifax hack where, people's uh social security numbers and credit card information was leaked that matters more to people but just in general people don't value their likeness very much and so the only way we will solve we will solve uh data privacy issues is is acting collectively i think there's just no chance of expecting individual actors to to change their their actions in such a way that we improve privacy because people have shown that they're willing to trade off privacy for even tiny benefits. And this is just like the best example of that, of a, a truly tiny benefit. Right. No, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head is that ultimately it's a transaction between you and Facebook or whatever system is collecting your data that you're you're trading your data for whatever utility the application provides to you. Unfortunately, I think a lot of, most people don't think of it in these terms. They don't consider the what you're actually trading and how valuable what, what you're trading is. Most people, I don't think, see any value in their data or don't consider it very much. Um, but when you, I'm curious, when you say collective action, do you, do you have something in mind in particular, some kind of action from a government entity or, or is it something else? I don't have a particular solution in mind. I mean, like, I'm sure I could throw some out there. I just think that the, the current way that privacy is treated, where it's like we yell at companies that spill the data, it's like obviously this isn't enough. The, and the, even the penalty that was issued to Facebook the other day, I think it was uh, $5 billion. I don't know. It, it just isn't nearly enough. You know, this doesn't counterbalance the benefit they derive from using your data. 
and apparently the benefit they derive from not being very careful with it. Um, you know, I, I could, I suppose, propose policy solutions, but I, I haven't thought about it enough to have any confidence in them. Okay, no, I, it, it was $5 billion. I just looked it up. It looks like FTC approved a $5 billion fine against Facebook. Um, it was kind of funny because the Facebook stock apparently rose after that because that because was now, so yes. well priced into the stock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. And that's actually a new phenomenon we are seeing, that companies are willing to act recklessly and uh, ask for forgiveness and pay fines because, as you have already put, the value of behaving in such ways is worth more than the fines that they're going to incur. Yeah, and that, I mean, that just indicates the current legislation is just a massive failure and that's no surprise i mean most most regular young people who you would expect to be tech literate still don't really understand how this stuff works it's just there's just not enough people that know how this stuff works and the old people in congressional bodies are just you know totally useless you see them asking questions that are borderline insane they don't make any sense yes and that goes across honestly but it is just so bad yeah yeah it has nothing to do with party affiliation except it's more of a lack of understanding amongst just large segments of people just that pretty much everybody would seem. Yeah. And I, I, you know, another issue with this stuff is we're going to have some experts like this woman, Liz O'Sullivan, who, who say, I can't believe everybody's doing this. And, you know, we need legislation even, I don't know if she even went that far, but many people are going to say that. But the problem is that, you know, you can't communicate that clearly to the people who actually write the legislation and and have uh, trials in Congress. You know, when they bring in people from Google to question them, they ask them dumb questions that aren't effective at all. And they don't understand how search engines work. They're like, you know, a frequent topic is like, do you prioritize right wing news over left wing news or vice versa? And anybody who studies machine learning in any way knows that that doesn't even really make sense. Like you can't you can't no, make a no. judgment about one, whether one of those is prioritized. That's just, it's, it is almost a, a question with a premise that cannot be accepted. Um, and so we're, we're just woefully under-equipped to deal with these problems. And I'm sure this has happened before in the history of technology, but I do think this is on another level. I do like, think this it is, is beyond too. the comprehension of the people in the field. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And I think from a legislator's perspective, right, they are woefully, woefully ignorant of, of how these <laughs> yeah. things work. But even from the individuals on the inside of these systems, asking them a question of, you know, how did we get this prediction or, or why, why do I get these search results is not a, it's not a logical question. And that might come to as a surprise to some people, but the systems that generate these things are fairly complex. Um, it's yeah. not easy to simply say, you know, X caused Y. That's somewhat of a, it's, we like to think yeah. we can simplify the world in that way, and when, but in reality, with these, with things like search engine results or how Facebook collects your data and then passes it along to others to ingest into different models and make predictions about you, you can't pinpoint one specific thing that would create a, a classification or a prediction about you. So it's it's really yeah. it's really a different beast than we're used to dealing with. I think. Uh, and I and I, I I agree. I would say that some type of legislation, on the the face of it, seems like what you would want to do, right? Like a collective action. But I, I I'm not sure it would be effective at all. I'm not yeah. sure that the government is going to be able to do much about this. Yeah, or or might act in ways that are sort of harmful. I was 
I've been on a reading about GDPR kick the last couple of days, and you know it's far from a foregone conclusion, but there are a lot of reputable, uh, what I would call like thought leaders in different parts of of uh, the data industry that think GDPR is actually having some really harmful effects and probably net harmful um, because it's just too expensive for small companies to compete. You're you're grinding out entrance that could potentially displace the giant social media networks yeah and some other things as well and it's like these are just it's just difficult to write these laws this is a particularly difficult field to intervene in because only a handful of people in the world understand it yes. like even the individual engineers in these companies only understand a tiny sliver of really how this stuff works yeah yeah uh, and it's just it's just very challenging no you're right and i've also think i haven't read recently about i don't think i've read the same things that you have about parts of this um the EU's laws on data privacy, how are affecting small businesses. But I do, I am somewhat aware of some of the areas they've taken action in. Some of the places that they focus on don't make any sense to me. Like one area that comes to mind often when I think of this is there are rules around cookies and what cookies can be placed on your computer. And all that's done is made traversing the web, the internet, a less pleasant experience because every website just pings you and says, we use cookies and it's because every website uses cookies. This is common. And I don't need to be notified about it every single time. And even if I were noti- like even getting the notification isn't helpful because I can't do anything to change it. Like this website won't function properly if I don't use cookies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It does seem so. Yeah, uh, it just points to, points to a thing that um, like I guess legislators are able to see and understand and measure in some way. And they say, you know, this is what we need to, to regulate. When in reality, the, the problem is just a lot more complicated than that, and it's more nuanced than that. It isn't a simple put up a notification that you're using cookies and everything will be fine. Yeah. And yet, I'm not sure I have a better solution. Because, you know, I, I'm sure that there was a point in the discussion where some lawmaker said, well, let's just ban cookies. And everybody who knew anything about <laughs> technology was like, well, nothing will work. Like, that's just, you know, the the things that provide benefits are inextricable from the downsides. There's just no, there's no separation of these things. Um, even, even like things that we all think of as terrible, like pop-up ads and stuff, you know, those funded big portions of the internet. It's just, it's just not simple. I think it's, it's rarely simple. No, I agree. It is. And this is just another example of really recent one of how, uh, the general public just isn't, doesn't have this in their collective minds, I guess, to to consider. And I'm not sure that's going to change anytime soon. But I mean, my my advice to anybody would I would say to be very skeptical of any new application or service that's collecting data on you, or might collect your images or or anything. Is to if I don't know, really, I would just say don't just avoid it. Right? I'm not sure that the benefits are really there for you, anyways, considering the risks involved. But uh, it doesn't seem reasonable to also, to suggest that anyone go through terms and services for every application they're using. That just that's not going to work either. So I don't know. There doesn't seem to be an easy solution. I, I guess the real thing that would be nice is, and you you can't ever say this, but just be nice if we had different people, right? So this is a thought I've gotten from um, Econ Talk, what a favorite podcast of ours is that it's easy to try to say you should have different people or better people in place, and that's not realistic, but. The problem would solve itself if we had people that care a lot more about their data privacy and understood the consequences of it. How you get there 
is a really difficult question, um, one that might not be answerable, but that would seem to be the way to fix this because I'm not confident that punishing punishing companies or having legislation put in place is really going to do much to deter this. Yeah. Yeah, that sort of supports uh, a general mantra of mine that the solution, the only long-term solution to most problems is education. But the problem is that education is a long-term solution, and it's really hard to change the education system in the first place. Yes. yes. Basically, more informed citizenry and voters is what you need, and it's just it's a long-time commitment to get there. Right. Yeah, and it's also not clear, clearly defined how you what like what metrics you would use to even define that problem, define that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, right now, yeah, right now we are teaching how to paint instead of how to program computers. I'm not optimistic for our future. I think painting provides social benefit, but no, I agree. We should focus more on teaching about technology than maybe we do. Yeah. Someday we should tackle that one. There's a, I think there's an episode of hello internet, another podcast that CGP gray does where he gets into a heated conversation about how we need coding in schools and what class we should cut. Yeah. In particular, he seems to think foreign languages are, should be swapped almost for, for uh, programming classes. Which honestly, I agree with him so much. It should be essentially beyond debate. That probably isn't true in other countries, but in America, all you do in language classes is you learn how to say like, can you give me your pencil? And then you forget it immediately. (laughs) Not one person comes out of high school language class with an ability to say anything useful. It's not like, regardless of whether you think foreign language is important, you just don't learn it. No, I agree. It's just a total waste of time. Yeah, and it starts way too late. It always starts in secondary education. So if you're lucky, mm-hmm. you may get introduced to a foreign language in middle school, which encompasses years six through eight for most most Americans. And but the major, in my experience was it didn't. It doesn't appear until high school, years nine through twelve. And at that point, it's way too late. My, I'm not going to retain much of this information. I know individuals who have spent multiple years studying the same studying languages and becoming very proficient and then just a couple years out of high school they've forgotten most of it and i don't think that that would be true of programming even if you look forgot how to the particulars of a particular language the broad concepts of how you think through a programming problem are going to stick with you they're going to be helpful to you yeah totally agree yes it is uh it is difficult someday someday we'll fix it but (laughs) for a while Okay. Well, first we have to amass a, a critical. We got to get a critical mass audience here listening to us, and then that's how we'll that's affect true. change. Eventually, it will just be you and I that affect change. Yes, through just our mere words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We better be careful with all of our power. <laughs> okay, well, I think that all about right. does it. I feel like we've yeah we've covered a lot of stuff today. Okay, that was fun. Good first episode. Anything yeah. we should uh, should tell the listeners before we go? Um. I don't know. Okay. I can't think of anything either. <laughs> all right. Cool. Well, thank you all for listening. Um, I think Greg and I enjoyed this. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And we will, we will talk to you again in a couple weeks. Yeah. It's good talking to you.